A quick note about today's episode. We originally started talking about covering today's topic, which is the New Orleans race riot of 1900, also known as the Robert Charles riots in July, following the police shootings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and the July 7th attack on Dallas police that killed five officers. Because the 1900 riots involved violence against both police and New Orleans black community, it's an important piece of historical context, but also one we wanted to wait to cover until a little time had passed. We recorded today's episode on September 13th, prior to the police shootings of Tyree King, Terrence Crutcher, and Keith Lamont Scott. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we are talking about a really complex piece of history, and it's one that Tracy and I discussed whether or not we should do it for a while, uh, and I kind of backburnered it for a little bit uh, because of recent racial strife in our own country, but that also makes it kind of an important moment to examine and look at. Yeah, it has definite parallels to a number of uh, relatively recent events. It does. The main person in this story, too, is is a little bit difficult because uh, his name is Robert Charles and he's been characterized all across the spectrum from a, a villainous monster to a sort of martyr figure. Uh, and in 1900, he committed some very horrible, violent acts in a racially charged uh, sort of moment in New Orleans history. And we don't really know why he did this. And there is, I should say right up front, a lot of violence in this story committed by a lot of different people. Um, and in reading the source that I primarily used for the subject, which is a book called Carnival of Fury, and it was written by William Ivy Hare, it really struck me as uncanny how similar some of the scenarios in this piece of history sound to news of today. And so this snapshot that it provides of the South in the decades after the Civil War and leading into the Jim Crow era is in some ways startlingly familiar. Uh, and the book is also full of racially charged language that was contemporary to the year that the riot happened. There's a lot of uh, relaying and reporting and reprinting of things that were in the newspapers that was language we would never use today. And so we've left those slurs out of today's recounting of those events. Um, but even so, be forewarned that there is still some truly horrifying violence that you kind of can't leave out and still get the story across. So if, uh, you know, violence, particularly racially charged violence, is the kind of thing that might be disturbing to you or that you might not want, maybe your younger historians hearing, this might be one to skip out on. Robert Charles was born in late 1865 or early 1866. His mother was actually carrying him when the United States Civil War ended. Jasper and Mariah Charles' parents had been enslaved when they conceived Robert, but they were free when he was born. He was the couple's fourth child and their fourth son. Yeah, his life becomes really interesting because it, it really is sort of this this parallel to the end of the Civil War leading uh, up to the turn of the century. Uh, and both of Robert's parents had been born into slavery. So when they were newly freed, it was the first time they had ever been free. And they made a life for themselves as sharecroppers on a cotton plantation in Mississippi. And it's unknown whether they leased that land from the person who had previously owned them or not. Sharecropping at this time was a system where a family could get by, but really just barely 
most of the freed former slaves who wanted to raise crops did not have the money to get started because they had previously been enslaved. So they had to rent their land, which was basically what sharecropping amounts to. In addition to owing the ongoing lease on the fields that they were working, a lot of them also had crop liens, which gave a merchant who provided their supplies to them the first claim on any of the crops that were harvested. And often that merchant that they had a crop lien with was also the person that owned their land and was renting it to them. So it was not uncommon for a farmer to basically owe most, if not all, of their income from raising crops to the merchant and landowner. And most families accrued significant debt in the seasons in between harvests as they depended on these supplies from their merchant to keep their family's basic needs met. So Robert and his siblings, his parents had six more children after he was born, uh, and another who they took on and was reportedly their grandchild who they raised They grew up in a system where prosperity was systematically unattainable for them. Yeah, there's there's a lot written, I should say, in that book that I cited just a moment ago that suggests that the Charles family did pretty well um, in relation to some other families. They did not get above a poverty level, but they were kind of able to to keep things even and not fall deeper and deeper and deeper into debt as some of the farmers in the area did. And at the same time, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, there was significant tumult and violence as the country moved through the Reconstruction era and led into the Jim Crow era. And for a while, Kapaya County, where the Charles family lived, was actually a little bit unique in that it had a fairly even split between black and white farmers. And there was a surprising level of cooperation between the races. Uh, there was a local white politician named John Prentice Matthews, who went as, went by Prince, uh, who organized a coalition of black and white farmers known as the Independent Party. Unfortunately, though, that coalition broke down during the financial stress and racial tensions that engulfed the country during the during Reconstruction. Tensions were so great during the weeks leading up to the elections of 1883 uh, that black members of the community who were politically active received death threats, most often by groups of men who broke into their homes to deliver those threats. Yeah, there was this group called the Procession, and they basically at night would just walk through the streets, finding homes to break into and threaten people that lived there. Uh, and while Jasper Charles was an active voter, pretty much from the moment he became a free man, he was not a political leader. Uh, so he wasn't necessarily targeted by these groups, but he still feared for his family's safety. And things became so perilous and there had been some deaths uh, that the Charles family, several other black families and a small group of white families who supported this idea of coalition all went into the woods to hide for safety in the last few days before the election. Print Matthews, that uh, politician who had organized this coalition party, was shot dead while he was casting his ballot on Election Day. And he was characterized in the days after as having, quote, organized the Negro race against the whites of the county. Many of Matthew's supporters, both black and white, moved away from Kapaya County after the Election Day murder. This exodus actually turned into a pretty big burden for the economy of the area. Much of the farmland was based on this debt-heavy system that benefited the landowners. And having so many of their renters move away, many of them leaving their debts behind, led to a real cost 
But there were also plenty of people who felt like the gain of having black people leave the county was worth it. And at this point, Robert Charles was 17. And there's been a lot of speculation over the years about whether he was multiracial or not, uh, based on both drawings and descriptive accounts of him. Um, so if you ever see that come up, know though that he always self-identified just simply as black. He, he didn't factor in any other possible lineage. And he actually stayed in Kapaya County after that election, but only for a few more years. In 1887, he moved to Vicksburg, Mississippi to look for employment. He worked for a while at the Vicksburg Waterworks Company and eventually settled into position in the, uh, Louisville, New Orleans and Texas Railroad starting in 1888. In May of 1892, Robert and his brother Henry were involved in an incident involving gunplay at a train depot in Rolling Fork, which is 40 miles north of Vicksburg. A young black man had stolen a pistol from Robert, and he and his brother had gone armed to retrieve it. And that weapon that had been stolen had changed hands. The train's flagman had it when they reached uh, Rolling Fork. And when Robert and Henry attempted to take it back, the flagman fired on them and they returned fire. The flagman eventually tossed the contested pistol from the train as it was departing and the Charles brothers retrieved it. No one was hurt, but this incident would be characterized very differently in later years. When the the riot situation happened, this got reported completely wrong as like he had killed uh, a train worker, like they're just completely... um, ludicrous exaggerations of what had happened. This was one of those things that came back after he became sort of a, a, a known entity and got told in embellished and bizarre ways. Even at the time, though, Robert was afraid that even though there had been no injuries as a black man who had shot at a white man, he was basically doomed if he stayed at this railroad job. So he changed his name to Curtis Robertson and moved back to Kapaya County. And his life there seems to have been relatively uneventful. Uh, there's not a lot of documentation on it until he was arrested for selling liquor in a dry county in fall of 1894. And he pled guilty and he was fined $40 plus costs. And while he was supposed to stay in jail until he could, could come up with that money, he managed to convince the judge to bypass that directive, uh, probably so that he could raise funds more easily. But he didn't pay that fine, and instead he left for New Orleans. An arrest warrant was issued in 1895 for the delinquent Curtis Robertson, although it doesn't seem that anyone actually pursued him. Then, in October of 1896, he appeared voluntarily in court before the same judge. He pleaded innocent to the exact same charges that he had been convicted for in 1894. This whole episode is a little confusing, The records on it are not complete, but he ultimately was cleared of the charges, although he opted to once again go to New Orleans instead of staying in Kapaya County where he had grown up. Yeah, there's debate over what really took place there. If while he had been free and had left for New Orleans, new evidence had come up that led him to return and clear his name or if something else played out. But uh, his return to New Orleans after this was all cleared up eventually catalyzed an incredibly violent period of riots. Uh, But before we get to that, we're going to pause, take a breather, and get ready for it while we hear about one of our fantastic sponsors. Perhaps 
the reason that Robert Charles, a.k.a. Curtis Robertson, was eager to go back to New Orleans was the fact that he had, earlier in 1896, joined a group called the International Migration Society. He had plans to move to Liberia, and he had already started making payments on this planned move. Over the next several years, he would slowly move away from using his alias and return to his original name of Robert Charles. Uh, and we've talked about on the podcast before that there were different factions, uh, even within the black community about how to sort of deal with race relations. And there, there were some, both black and white people who thought the best thing would be for freed slaves to move back to Africa, even though many of them had never been to Africa before. Uh, and as we lead into this, uh, this was a point in U.S. history where uh, the police force in New Orleans was considered the most overworked and poorest paid in the nation. Um, while the city in 1900 had more than 300,000 residents, it had 315 policemen. Fewer than 200 of those were available for patrols. So there was a, a setup where even though they made less money in a lot of times than sort of unskilled labor on the railroad, there were lots of people that wanted to work for the police department, but there really weren't funds to hire them. And so even if they were working 12-hour shifts, two shifts a day, there were still fewer than 100 officers to cover the entire um, square mileage of the city in that time. So it, it, one of the things that comes up in, in Carnival of Fury is the idea that it was actually pretty startling that the violent crime rate was really pretty low in New Orleans. There were a lot of petty crimes, but not a lot of violent crimes at this point. Race relations in New Orleans were as complicated as they were anywhere else in the South and the rest of the country at this point. Uh, while in some neighborhoods, white and black working class citizens lived in fairly integrated circumstances, the belief that black people were inferior was as common as anywhere else in those neighborhoods. There was even one New Orleans newspaper, States, which was the official journal of city government, that routinely featured anti-black writings by its editor, Henry J. Hearsey, who firmly believed that the only way to solve the race problem was to use his own word, extermination. His writings are exactly as horrific as you are probably thinking. Um, and all of this is kind of a setup to give insight into why Robert Charles, as well as uh, some other people of color, planned to move to Liberia. And as it turned out, the International Migration Society folded in 1899. There is a very high likelihood that it had been largely an operation in which its white organizers collected monthly dues from black people in exchange for the promise of travel. That's- I know you already said, but I kind of want to say again that there were so many different organizations talking about uh, relocating to Liberia, working from so many different perspectives with so many different uh, motivations. Like there were definitely organizations that were explicitly racist that were like, we need the black people to leave. But then there were also people who were advocating for themselves saying, OK, we're never going to have a fair life here, so we should leave. So like, I don't want to paint the entire movement based on this one organization because there were so many different perspectives on it. Robert Charles, for his part, might not have realized that the IMS was at worst a flim-flam operation and at best just poorly run after the organization folded and then reorganized under the name of Liberia Colonization Society. He routinely wrote to one of the organizers uh, 
and distributed literature on behalf of the society all throughout Louisiana and Mississippi, he might have been not aware that the person that he was writing to was not actually black. Yeah, that comes up as one of the the things. It seems like these people were running this society, but not really working with the people that they were collecting money from. And allegedly they did send a couple of trips to Liberia, but completely underprepared, unfunded. And most of the people that went on those trips died shortly after they arrived in Africa, either from malnutrition or uh, some illness that they contracted on the voyage. So even if it was kind of on the up and up, it was just not well organized at all. Charles also began working with Bishop Henry M. Turner of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Atlanta, and he asked to be a subscription agent for Voice of Missions, which was a monthly periodical that the bishop produced. Turner was also a proponent of the Back to Africa cause, and Voice of Missions was one of his primary methods for spreading the ideology that a new beginning in Liberia was the best next step for black people in the United States. In June 1900, Robert Charles was laid off from his job. He had been working in a lumberyard. He had a very small income from selling copies of The Voice of Missions, but to conserve as much money as he could, he asked a young man named Leonard Pierce to rent a room with him so that the two of them could split the cost. Yeah, Leonard Pierce was only 19. He was very young, um, and that would, of course, change his life forever. Uh, on July 23rd of 1900... Robert Charles invited his roommate Leonard to go meet two women with him for sort of a double date. And Charles at this point was already dressed and Pierce, who had just gotten home from work, washed up and also dressed to go out. Both men were armed, which was not at all unusual at the time. The two of them first went to visit Robert's sister, Alice, and then to Dryad Street, where the two women, Virginia Banks and Ernestine Goldstein, rented a room from a white woman named Mrs. Cooley. Robert had told Leonard that the ladies had been out on an excursion that day and that they would be back late. This wasn't actually the case, although we really don't know if this was a purposeful deception or not. It's kind of likely that Charles was hoping to wait until Mrs. Cooley was asleep to then try to gain admittance to the home to visit with Banks and Goldstein. Yeah, just like if you have ever gone as a teenager to see one of your friends or someone you had a crush on late at night and tapped on their window to try to get in secretly without their parents knowing. It was kind of like that situation. Uh, and while the two men waited for the ladies, who were, in fact, in their rented room throughout the evening, they sat on the steps of another house on the street at 2815 Dryads Street, New Orleans. New Orleans PD Sergeant Jules C. Cohen was told, according to his account, that a pair of suspicious-looking black men were hanging around on the steps of a white family on Dryad Street. He whistled to summon two other officers, Joseph Cantrell and August Mora, uh, to go investigate this with him. And according to Mora's later testimony, which remained the most consistent throughout multiple tellings in the aftermath of anyone's, The trio approached Charles and Pierce, and they inquired as to why they were lingering there on the steps of a house that was not theirs. And as the officers neared the pair on the steps, Robert Charles stood up. So Robert Charles was pretty tall, about six feet, and Mora took his standing up as an aggressive gesture. He grabbed Charles and after a minor scuffle, beat him with his baton. Which of the men drew his gun first is completely unknown, Mora actually relayed this story both ways, but both men ultimately fired shots and both were injured. 
Cantrell had also fired his weapon, and it's unknown whether his shot or Mora's hit Robert Charles in the thigh. And throughout all of this, Leonard Pierce had sat motionless and terrified on the steps. A Cohen had held him at gunpoint, and so Pierce did not see all of the details of this Mora Charles altercation that it was playing out. Charles fled the scene and made his way to his apartment at 2023 4th Street. Pierce, who was frightened and crying, gave the police the address, and a patrol wagon arrived there at 3 a.m. on July 24th. As they approached the room, they saw that the door was open a crack, and when they called out to Robert Charles to open up, he emerged and he shot Captain John T. Day dead. Then he shot the patrolman, Peter J. Lamb, in the head. Charles then retreated into his room and shut the door. And according to accounts, he could be heard reloading his Winchester rifle. Another tenant uh, of that same house, a woman, opened her door and she ushered the remaining two police officers who had gone into the building, Julesia Cohen and Ernest Trenchard, into her room. And they sheltered there with her for two full hours. At the same time, several officers outside had remained in place, at one point calling out to inquire if they needed to go in, they need assistance inside the house, but they didn't ultimately enter the house. At 4.30, Charles emerged from the home and fired at one of the officers, grazing his cap. Both of the policemen ran away, and they would later testify that they had been looking for a telephone. They did actually phone in the precinct from a nearby drugstore. Yeah, that whether or not they were running away from him in fear for safety or whether they were actually looking for the telephone comes up a little bit later. Uh, but by daybreak, it appeared that Robert Charles had left the premises and word quickly spread through both the neighborhood and the police force what had happened. And Fourth Street quickly became crowded with both officers and onlookers and a massive manhunt ensued. So New Orleans, already fraught with racial tension, became a powder keg of violence. Initially, there were calls to go to the precinct, take Pierce, and lynch him. The police moved into the parish prison to try to protect him. And at that point, almost any black man became a suspect to the various mobs that started circling in the streets. Before July 24th was over... Multiple black men and two black women had been beaten by mobs and another armed group of vigilantes was dispersed uh, by a lie. This was basically a quick thinking gamble that an alderman told them, saying that Robert Charles had been arrested in a nearby town, which caused the crowd to break up. They were seemingly satisfied by the knowledge that he had been arrested, but this was really just the calm before the storm. Yeah, the next day, as it became known that Charles was, in fact, not in custody, anger raged anew. And the acting mayor at the time, uh, the the regular mayor was away, was keenly aware of the potential for this situation to very quickly get out of hand. So he issued the following proclamation. Whereas, as a result of the regrettable assassination of Captain Day and Officer Lamb and the wounding of Officer Mora, There is a disposition manifested on the part of certain of our citizens to take the law into their own hands, much to the prejudice of the good name of the city of New Orleans. Now, therefore, I, William Maley, acting mayor, call upon good citizens to aid the authorities in preserving the peace, not to assemble on public streets and places discussing the sad events here and above set forth, but to let justice take its course." 
But there was so much anger and tension that this proclamation did no good. Unfortunately, some of the city's papers also ran incredibly incendiary pieces that suggested that all black people were part of a larger problem that had culminated in Robert Charles's actions. The Henry Hersey paper states that we mentioned earlier led to a frenzy when it ran a fear-mongering editorial on the afternoon of July 25th about the dangerous, quote, regime of the free Negro that threatened the safety of a white society. And we're going to pause here uh, for a word from a sponsor because things will take a very ugly turn. Uh, so we're going to have that little break so we can get ready. And then we will jump into the last part of the story. Today's podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page or a beautiful gallery or a professional blog or an online store, or maybe let's say that you want to write about sewing projects like Holly, or maybe you want to put up pictures from your wedding like me, lots of things you can do with a Squarespace website. Squarespace is easy. Creating your website with Squarespace is a simple and intuitive process, and you can add and arrange your content and features all with the click of a mouse. You can get a free custom domain if you sign up for a year. There are beautiful best-in-class templates that uh, you can customize all your settings, all without having to download a single plugin. There are seamless commerce tools, if that is what you're into, and 24-7 customer support. You can get your free trial today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. So as a bit of fair warning, the grislier aspects of this tale take place here in the last segment. Uh, so brace yourselves or tap out if you think it might be too much for you or any younger history buffs, or maybe review it before you share it with younger listeners uh, who might be listening. Basically, the rioting that night was horrifying. The mob first assembled at a monument to Robert E. Lee with a plan to march to the parish prison and take Leonard Pierce by force. Along the way to the prison, assaults started, and any black person, including women and the elderly, who was unfortunate enough to be in the path of this mob, found themselves in grave danger. And as this mob was walking through the streets and would encounter streetcars that were carrying people home for the evening, they would stop those cars and board them. And any black citizens found aboard were beaten or in many cases shot dead at point blank range. By the time the violent mob reached the prison, it consisted of 3,000 people, which were primarily young white men. The prison was barricaded and defended by some of the city's most respected peacekeepers, who made it very clear that they would not yield. The mob eventually moved on from its original objective and instead headed to the black entertainment venues, found them closed and deserted. So the group splintered into smaller groups of vigilantes as the night wore on, searching out additional victims. And as the sun came up on the 26th, the numbers of rioters actually swelled as some who had left the night before when things started to splinter apart once again joined the violent herd, apparently after they had gone home and gotten some rest. So over the course of the next 12 hours, the government made a call to citizens to form a special police force to help quell the violence and try to restore the city to peace. Some offers of assistance uh, that came in had clearly missed the message. They did not get that the idea was to stop violence. Uh, They were hoping that the government was going to sanction their desires 
to annihilate all of New Orleans' black community. The night of the 26th was still marked by violence. Both beatings and murders still happened that night, although the assembled militia was slowly gaining control of the city. But after three days of searching at this point, Robert Charles was still at large. And he had, in fact, been in one place the entire time that these waves of mob violence had been sweeping through New Orleans. He had sought refuge with friends and they had granted it. But on Friday, July 27th, a tip came in from a black informer to the the superintendent of police. A family named Jackson was harboring him at their rented home at 1208 Saratoga Street. Robert Charles had known the Jacksons for several years, and many people had seen him visit in the Saratoga Street house. Sergeant Gabriel Porteous was dispatched to check out the tip. And Porteous had actually been one of the men who had defended the prison and kept rioters away from Pierce. And he was an incredibly well-respected policeman by both black and white citizens. He was considered unusually fair in his treatment of everyone he encountered on his job. When Robert Charles got wind that the police were on Saratoga Street, he hid with his rifle in a closet. He had a portable furnace for casting bullets, and he had been melting down lead pipe to make his ammunition. So Porteous and Corporal John F. Lally, once they had made their way to the Jackson home, questioned Silas Jackson about Robert Charles. And Jackson claimed to have no knowledge of the man, but the policeman believed that he was actually Charles's brother. There was some confusion and they placed him under arrest and they were walking him into the house. Charles emerged from the closet where he had been hiding and he shot both officers, Porteous and Lally. Porteous died almost immediately, but Lally held on for a little while. And there was a moment of confusion as several men ran from their homes in the area after hearing these shots Initially, two policemen who had been stationed in the street attempted to arrest a man thinking that he was Charles, but then realizing he was simply somebody who lived nearby and had been running in fear. Yeah, once those shots rang out, I mean, again, knowing what had been happening in the city, pretty much everyone that was near uh, this house ran into the streets. And so everyone thought that all of those people were Robert Charles fleeing. But Charles had not fled. He had, in fact, gone into an upstairs bedroom. And then he actually kicked a hole in the wall that separated that bedroom from the adjoining bedroom to give himself a wider range of vantage points. And initially, it was believed that Charles was gone. But then when he shot at a white man who was standing in the yard below, he revealed his position and a standoff began. So we we don't know what he was thinking or what was motivating him, but he has to have known at this point that there was no way out. And it appears that desperation of that knowledge incited this mindless violence because Robert Charles then began firing at white citizens. Mayor Captavia, who had returned from his traveling and relieved the acting mayor, William Maley, made a declaration that the authorities would fire Gatling guns into the white mob that was forming uh, around this house if things got out of hand again. So they were trying to prevent mob violence. But just the same, an armed mob of approximately 5,000 formed in the neighborhood surrounding Charles's hideout. And the numbers continued to swell, with estimates placing the number when it topped out upwards of 10,000 people. During the conflict, Charles was shot at thousands of times. The house was severely damaged, but Charles somehow survived. 
He had fired his weapon an estimated 50 times in the course of an hour and 40 minutes, and he had killed two additional people and wounded 19 others. Eventually, desperate to flush Charles out from the residence, police snuck into the lower floor of the residence and set a fire using a horsehair mattress from the home, which they soaked in kerosene. The hope was that the smoke would drive him out. And a fire patrol captain that was with them dribbled water on the mattress so that it would produce thick, thick clouds of smoke. This actually worked, although the spreading fire was really what drove Charles out. As Robert Charles attempted to exit the residence, he was shot. He fell and was shot several more times while trying to turn over, still cl- still clutching his weapon. A hail of bullets was unleashed on his body by several men who were in the room he had been attempting to leave through. And when it was clear that he was dead and the ammunition was running out among the men that were there at close range, his body was dragged outside the house's front entrance. A frenzy of dragging and beating the corpse and riddling it with bullets then commenced. His body was then stomped, and though the crowd wished to burn it, the police stopped things there. Uh, what was left of his remains was then carried away on the police wagon. But as they made their way through the streets, the crowd continued to bat at his body with sticks. Many people chased the wagon through the streets all the way to the morgue. The night of the 27th, despite the fact that it was quickly common knowledge that Robert Charles was dead, two other black men were killed in the street and a black schoolhouse was burned to the ground. The volunteer forces that had been called to action earlier in the week stayed on duty throughout Saturday and into the morning hours on Sunday to try to deter further violence. On Sunday, which was July 29th, the body of Robert Charles was taken as discreetly as possible to be buried in the city's Potter's Field, which was Holt Cemetery. He was buried quickly without ceremony, and the location of his grave was kept secret to prevent any grisly souvenir seekers from exhuming the body and cutting it up and taking pieces away. The five officers who had been at Charles's residence when he shot and killed two of their fellow officers were all charged with cowardice for failing to apprehend him at that time. They were all found guilty and dismissed from the force. Uh, all of them appealed their verdict, but lost. Yeah, so those men that said that they were going to search for a phone uh, were still found guilty of cowardice for having run away. Leonard Pierce was indicted on a charge of attempting to murder Police Sergeant O'Cohen. Ten people connected to the incident at the Saratoga Street residence were arraigned, although one of the men that was involved hanged himself in his cell before indictments were handed down. Testimony by Silas Jackson's wife, Martha, indicated that while she had taken in Robert Charles for fear that he would hurt her or her family if she didn't, neither Silas nor anyone else had actually known that they were harboring him. Eventually, only Silas, Martha, and Charles Jackson were tried. Martha and Charles were acquitted, and the jury returned a decision of guilty for silence, but that was for manslaughter. The judge threw out that decision, saying that his only possible guilt would have been for aiding and abetting. By May of 1901, all of the Saratoga Street residents involved in the case had been set free. Additionally, nine white men were indicted for first-degree murder in the mob violence after numerous witnesses testified against them. Two other men were indicted on charges of unlawful assembly in connection to the riots. The actual trials were a mess of hung juries and confused testimony and resulted basically in abandonment of the cases. 
In June 1901, Leonard Pierce was released on bond, and despite many scheduled hearings, none of them ever happened due to schedule conflicts on the part of a Cohen. Yeah, they finally kind of gave up on the case. Uh, and in the weeks following the riots in New Orleans in July of 1900, there were numerous acts of violence around the country that were attributed in one way or another to the unrest associated with the Robert Charles incidents. A final death toll attributed to Robert Charles's actions was four white police officers and three civilians. Additionally, he had seriously wounded eight people and slightly wounded a dozen more. Dozens of black residents who had no connection to Robert Charles other than being of the same race had been brutalized. Many others, both black and white, had been injured by the mobs who ran the streets of New Orleans in search of vigilante justice. After the riots, the room that Robert Charles had shared with Leonard Pierce was invaded by both press and looky-loos, many of them hoping to carry away souvenirs. Among his personal effects were several textbooks and composition books. And while one reporter examined the books and determined that Charles was working on, quote, improving himself intellectually, the writings of Robert Charles in those composition books was lost. They were taken by unknown persons as souvenirs, and they have never turned up in the record again. Robert Charles had one white friend in New Orleans who was a clothing store salesman named Hyman Levy. And Charles, who Levy only ever knew as Curtis Robertson, regularly purchased clothing from Levy's shop. And the two really came to know and like one another. And it's interesting to note, and this is very counter to most uh, accounts and testimonies that were given after all of this violence happened, uh, that the characterization of Charles as a bloodthirsty monster is not one that Levy holds to. He always described him really favorably as seemingly well-educated and smart and with excellent taste in clothes. And in fact, he was one of the people that identified the body of Robert Charles based on the clothes that he had been wearing. In a lot of ways, this is one of history's mysteries. While we do know what happened in the various altercations between Robert Charles and the police, we don't have any clear records of his mindset or even his demeanor in the days that led up to that first shooting on July 23rd. Many of the statements of acquaintances who vilified him are believed to have been given out of fear by people of color who were basically trying to distance themselves from his story, uh, basically as a means of self-preservation. Yeah, one of the women that he and Pierce were going to meet was apparently, uh, by some accounts, his girlfriend. And when she was questioned, she really told a terrible story that he was violent and that he was uh, had been violent with her. But that was the first time that ever came up. And so there's some theory that she was so terrified that if she was associated with him and he had been going to meet her that night, that she would somehow be implicated in these crimes that that account is often not considered reliable. Uh, it's, as I said at the beginning, it's a, a strange story and it's very complicated and it's one that deserves thought. You know, it causes me to reflect on kind of how, how things can quickly escalate and get out of hand and happen without thoughts. Well. So. And we have talked about other events on the show that are often described as as race riots. Um, and a lot of times that term is not really indicative of what really happened because it makes it sound like 
there were multiple races involved that were equal aggressors. And overwhelmingly, that is not the case. And even in this particular case, like you did have one man who was horrifyingly killing police officers and civilians. But then in terms of the riot that broke out, that was definitely not something in which two sides were equal aggressors. That was a riot in which one side was seeking vigilante justice. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much all of the accounts suggest that basically every black person in New Orleans at the time was hiding. They were so terrified. Uh, and with good reason that I can't imagine how frightening that must have been. Um, would you like to move on to non-frightening listener mail? I would, please. Okay. As I've said recently, we are working through a huge stockpile of awesome postcards because while we have been traveling, people have been traveling and sending us fabulous notes from the road. Uh, so I will talk about a few of them quickly here because I know this has been a longish episode. First, uh, our listener Paula has sent us a few postcards and two of them that I really super love. One, she sent us from Route 66 in Oatman because she ate at the Olive Oatman restaurant. And that made her think of the podcast that we did on Olive Oatman. The other one I super de duper love. It is from the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, which is not especially super history oriented, but um, she went to space camp. And for some reason, this card made her think of us uh, in Martian fashion. So it is basically like a journey to Mars poster that's done in postcard size. And it's lovely. Who wouldn't want to think about Martian fashion? I certainly want to, especially after horrifying episodes. Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you, Paula. Like, it's so cool that you share all of this travel with us. Uh, the other one is from our listeners, Emily and Mark. And they say, greetings from San Juan Island. We had planned a camping trip here before one of us, uh, which is apparently Emily, stumbled upon your pig war episode while making our way through your backlogs. We listened again on our way to the island and visited both the English and American camps, which are national historic parks. The park, quote, celebrates how individuals and nations can resolve disputes without resorting to violence, end quote. And then uh, she put in parentheses, but just barely. Thank you for the fun and apropos podcast. So they sent us a lovely postcard from San Juan Islands. Uh, so that was lovely. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Paula and Emily and Mark. I hope your travels were all safe. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcasts at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. That's at uh, Missed in History on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Missed in History, Pinterest.com slash Missed in History, Missed in History.tumblr.com, and on Instagram at Missed in History. You can visit our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks. You can research almost anything you like there. Just put something into the search bar and you're going to come up with a ton of results, which will be interesting and fascinating. You can also find us at MissedInHistory.com, where we have a backlog. We have all of our episodes in an archive format from when the show first began. There are also show notes for every episode that Tracy and I have worked on together. Uh, so we encourage you, come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com or HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 